having practiced for the entire week and feeling all of your practice this entire week and the stillness that, that so quickly settles in the, in the hall is really a, a metaphor for um, the topic tonight, this, this topic of equanimity. That, that aspect of settling down and settling in. Regardless of the definitions or the um, uh, descriptions of awakening or enlightenment, there are many of them, very active debates sometimes. One of the images that's offered in awakening or enlightenment is the farther shore, the far shore. And so given the mind, my mind, that thinks about these things, I wonder, well, what's in between? <laughs> what's in between me and awakening? <laughs> and so the image that, that comes to me immediately is if that's the far shore, then there's a huge ocean in between. And, um, you know, all of the struggles that occur in that ocean, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, the ups and downs, the, the twists and the turns, the, the direct roots and the, and the getting lost. And in weaving through all of these joys and sorrows, I'm reminded that um, the Buddha's life is a template of this experience representative of, of um, going from these extremes of the joys and the sorrows that, that for the first um, almost 30 years of his life, he lived in absolute opulence, that every material, psychological, emotional need was met by his father and his family and his court in the palace that, you know, these three palaces that were built for to protect him. And when he had a sense that even in that cloistered life that there was, there was not lasting freedom or happiness and he went forth from that, he went to the other extreme of six years of ascetic practice of, um, of sitting with different teachers and, 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 this, and that his life was buffeted by these extremes too, searching for this middle path. And we are buffeted, we vibrate, we vacillate between the same extremes of the Buddha's path every time we sit, every time we go into retreat. We follow his footsteps and his journey to sit under the Bodhi tree into the exploration of what really leads to freedom, what really leads to this thing that we call happiness. And whether we have an explicit practice of equanimity, equanimity practices on us. It is the nature of the container of this retreat to help you stretch and hold all of your experience the invitations of the practice, the instructions, the talks, the meditations, the guidance, are all to support you to internalize this capacity to hold all of the joys and the sorrows. So one of the classic images of equanimity is riding the waves of the ocean the immensity of the ocean is like the immensity of, of the experiences in our life. All of the sensations, the thoughts, the feelings, the, the uh, regrets, the fantasies, the uh, desires, all of that are the waves of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And yet, as much as part of the ocean are the waves, the waves are not the ocean itself. And just as the joys and the sorrows of our life are not the totality of our life, 
that our life is so much more than just the waves. And there are sometimes that there are no waves at all. And sometimes there's the most violent storms. Can we float on the ocean and surf these waves? So the Pali word for equanimity is upeka. One description is to perceive patiently. And another description is this evenness of mind as it meets whatever arises. And so we've been talking about this, this um, as a form of balance. Equanimity emerges from the teachings of the Brahma Viharas, these um, um, uh, the places in which, the highest places in which the heart lives, turning this core energy of loving kindness or metta towards the sorrows and towards the joys. And you can feel in one sitting, in one day, in one hour, in a week of your life, you go through hundreds of cycles of vacillating back and forth between the joys and the sorrows. And eventually, there is a way of holding it that emerges with equanimity. This holding with this kind awareness can be that balance, can be support for that balance. Like, like as we learn to ride a bicycle, you know, the first time you get on a bicycle, you fall down. You may even hurt yourself, skin your knee and need, you know, the, the care and the compassion. And then you get back up again and you probably fall down again. And then eventually you'll get pretty wobbly and sometimes fall down. You might need support. You know, again, the container of the retreat. But eventually you ride. And when you ride and you're in balance, you're always falling down. I don't care if you're Lance Armstrong. You're still falling down. You're just catching yourself faster over and over again. And so balance is this dynamic, lived experience. Making these micro-movements, these micro-adjustments. What's skillful here? Oh, that crossed this boundary. Coming back again. Jesse Jackson, Reverend Jesse Jackson said, you may not be responsible for getting knocked down, but you are certainly responsible for getting back up. That's the aspect of equanimity. Balancing the entire range of your life's experience with this evenness of mind. I was um, offering a class in the Brahma Viharas um, at one of the places I teach in, in San Francisco. And uh, in the equanimity class, um, one of the practitioners wrote this to me. I was in Oklahoma City not long after the federal building bombing, which was in 1995. We were driven around the bombed out building by one of the rescue workers. She told us many heartbreaking stories, some sad, some good. She also mentioned that the dogs they used for sniffing out survivors and the dead had to be taken off site after every two hours of work and played by their handlers. Otherwise, the dogs would become extremely depressed. Playtime was a way of regaining their balance just to be dogs again. Even dogs need this balance. This balance is helped by just seeing things as they are, allowing that into our, our hearts and our minds with an attitude of non-reactivity. So this is a key word because non-reactivity is not no activity. 
It's not passivity. Non-reactivity is a form of activity. It's intentional. One of the phrases of um, the equanimity practices on the bulletin board, all beings are owners of their karma, their happiness and unhappiness depends upon their actions and not upon my wishes for them. Some other turns of the phrase as we have offered different options might be, I care deeply and cannot control the outcomes for you. This life is but a play of joy and sorrow. May we remain undisturbed by life's rise and fall. Things have come to be just as they are. This moment has come to be just as it is in this moment. So again, as with all of the divine abodes, all of the Brahma-viharas, there are near opposites and far opposites, things that are clearly um, the opposite extreme and things that look like subtly masquerade as. And one of the, uh, the near opposites of this balance or equanimity is indifference or apathy. There's a distance or detachment involved. Sometimes even a, a superiority, almost like the, the near enemy uh, or opposite of compassion, that pity. And I find that there's one word in our vocabulary that, that, um, that is emblematic of this indifference. And we use it so frequently. Whatever. You know, it's not just the word, it's the tone of voice, right? Uh, uh, uh. I mean, can you feel the indifference? But there's even, you know, as I was looking up this word in the Urban Dictionary, I began to realize that underneath the indifference, which may seem neutral, is a is lots of aversion, so you know the urban dictionary is sort of um, uh, it translates it into our social vernacular, and so of course, the first translation is i don 't care of this word, whatever the second translation was "Get a life <laughs> Third translation was "Nothing you say or do could make you matter to me." It's getting, you know, so you can feel the aversion get stronger. Last one that I pulled off the internet. I'm actually upset that you're stealing my air. <laughs> Feeling the aversion underneath this indifference that, that masquerades as, as the non-attachment. So it's detachment, masquerading as non-attachment. Because with equanimity, you can be fully engaged, but not separate. We think that we're, when we're non-attached, that we cannot care. But if we pay attention, we can care deeply. We can be, we can we can see the truth and the ability. Again, I repeat this serenity prayer, to accept the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Because in that passage, equanimous action emerges from wisdom and kindness of the non-reactivity. Equanimity is not neutrality, it is not passivity. We can have extremely strong opinions, which all of us do, and passions, but not be driven by them. 
So the traditional far opposite of equanimity is the reactivity to extremes, of course. You know, this pendulation. So what does, what does non-reactivity really mean? And this is where I find all of the, the teachings um, really support all of the other teachings because the second foundation of mindfulness, the teaching of Vedana, the teaching of being aware of pleasant, unpleasant and neutral sensations is so important that, that it can prevent us from moving into that reactive state. Just noticing in every single experience it is said that you can reduce it to one of three experiences. Is it pleasant? unpleasant, or is it not pleasant and not unpleasant or neutral? Because what we do when we're not mindful or aware is we'll push away the unpleasant, we'll want more of the pleasant, and we won't pay attention. We'll be bored with, indifferent, slightly aversive to the neutral. And so one of the, and some of you may have experienced this in your Vipassana practice. We all experience it. It's just whether you take it on as a practice or not. And that's, you know, when you sit on, on the cushion or the chair, what arises is this practice called the itch, right? <laughs> it, it always comes up. And just noticing the impulse and not needing to react. Because, you know, with the, the practice of the itch, you know it's not going to kill you. You know you're not going to, you know, spin yourself into an emotional frenzy. <laughs> and yet, what do we do nine times out of ten when we're not mindful? We get rid of it by scratching it. And of, and of course, this is not about not itching anything for the rest of your life. (laughs) This is the template of how many itches do we scratch in order to get out of our experience because we don't like it. How many experiences in our life do we not experience? Do we overlook? Do we not pay attention to? Because we can't actually go through the experience what is, the, what is the other side of the itch? Because there is another side of it and we'll never see it unless we sustain that awareness with kindness and it changes. This noticing pleasant, unpleasant, neutral is so important also for these intense states of heart and mind that arise. So, for example, anger or rage, which, you know, there's a lot of out there and there's a lot of in here when we sit. Just noticing the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral and noticing How many pleasant sensations are there in anger that I was never aware of? Because what the unconscious reaction will be is to want more. So how often do we unconsciously feed that anger without even knowing it? You know, we have this thing called self-righteousness. What is that? because that actually feeds the pleasant sensations of anger. There's a lot of, um, as you know, a lot of um, mindfulness training and cultivation and, um, in many aspects of our culture and some of them are occurring in our, in our school systems and uh, to amazing results. Um, in the San Francisco Chronicle just two weeks ago, um, they talk about the Visitation Valley Middle School in which, you know, previous to 2007, there was um, 
that gunfire was commonplace and, and um, most students either had been shot or knows, who ha- knows someone who has been shot or knows someone who did the shooting. And that murders were so frequent in the school that um, they had to employ a full-time grief counselor. And so they, of course, the academics plummeted. And after sort of the mindfulness was introduced over two, three years, they call it quiet time, the number of suspensions fell by 45%, and daily attendance climbed by 98%. And grade point averages improved, and 20% of their graduates now get admitted to the most exclusive high school in San Francisco. And there's a story of a kid from one of these classes, and he comes to his meditation teacher and or his quiet time teacher and says, "I discovered something. Guess what I discovered?" And the teacher says, "What?" What did you discover? I discovered when I get angry, I don't have to do anything. Wow. That is something for us to discover over and over again. I mean, how many times do we forget that? And, and what possibility, what potential does this young boy have to bring to his social clique, his social group, as he moves through his life. The Buddha said, where there is attachment to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant, liberation is not possible. And our culture is conditioned to these extremes. I was walking by a clothing store in San Francisco and, and you know, the banner that, that is the advertising um, slogan of the store said, moderation kills the spirit. <laughs> Talk about reinforcement. We overlook, we overlook, we don't pay attention to, we take for granted this option of living in the middle. You know, we're really good at living the highs of our life. We're actually pretty good at living the low, depressed, angry states. You know, something's happening. But when nothing seems to happen, we're not there. What would it be like if things were just okay and not spectacular. It's called Life of a Day. Like people or dogs, each day is unique and has its own personality quirks which can be easily seen if you look closely. But there are so few days as compared to people, not to mention dogs, that would be surprising if a day were not a hundred times more interesting than most people. But usually... They just pass, mostly unnoticed, unless they're wildly nice like autumn ones full of red maple leaves and hazy sunlight, or if they're grimly awful ones in a winter blizzard that kills the lost traveler and bunches of cattle. For some reason, we like to see days pass, even though most of us claim we don't want to reach our last one for a long time. We examine each day before us with barely a glance and say, no, this isn't the one that I've been looking for, and wait in a bored sort of way for the next one when we are convinced our lives will start for real. Meanwhile, this day is going by perfectly well-adjusted as some days are, with the right amounts of sunlight and shade and a light breeze, scented with a perfume made from the mixture of fallen apples, corn stubble, dry oak leaves, and the faint odor of last night's meandering skunk. There is an invitation to recognize when there is contentment in our life. 
which isn't that dramatic. Just being okay with the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral sensations. Being okay with however your practice is arising for you. Contentment is not dependent on how much we have, but about it is about how little we actually need to live. So even in the middle of this particular sharing, just stop and reflect on what do you not need right now? Because there's some freedom there. There's not any attachment. What would it be like for our lives if we were not only content with the material things in our life, but actually how our life is in this moment? You know, there are, there are so many feelings that can arise about not feeling good enough, not looking good enough, not doing enough, not being good enough. What would our life look like if all of who we are was completely sufficient and good enough. You know, Winnicott, the therapist, proposed this concept of the good enough parent. It's worth to consider how would we live if we had a good enough life? Right now, right in front of us, what would it be like if this retreat were good enough? What are our expectations of these moments of freedom in spiritual practice? Are they supposed to be expansive and illuminating and brilliant? And how long do they last? What if, what if they're more mundane, ordinary, and they come and go? Can we experience these moments of freedom or insight or kindness to be just good enough? What are the just okay moments of freedom? Not every aspect of our spiritual practice has to be life-changing or earth-shattering. There is a huge range of flavors of freedom. Feel the contentment in the body, mind, and heart. Begin to be familiar with that territory of living in that middle. Not at this retreat, at another retreat, somebody said. (laughs) I am just bored out of my mind. And we sort of unwrapped this conversation and, and uh, I asked, well, what would it be like to be bored into your mind? <laughs> Going deep into the mind. So I don't think that Andy Warhol was a Buddhist, but um, you know, he painted all of those repetitive, boring images you know, of Jackie O or Campbell's soup cans, whatever it is. So this is his quote. I've been quoted a lot as saying, I like boring things, but that doesn't mean that I'm bored by them. Because the more you look at the same thing, the more the meaning goes away and the better and emptier you feel. That's, that's an interesting Dharma exploration speaking about the repetition and the ordinariness of our practice. But our minds are conditioned over and over to satiate the extremes, the wanting, the craving. You know, we just have this addiction to more, more is better, bigger is better. This inability to rest in the balance of contentment. 
And the irony is that the craving and the attachment of desire can never be satiated. All craving is the craving for no craving. That's the irony. All craving is the craving for satisfaction. But even if those, you know, physical sensations are are met in that moment, it's only temporary. Because satiating craving does not create real contentment. The craving of desire has no wisdom. It does not have the ability to see the truth, which is that the cause of suffering is craving itself. Only awareness and mindfulness cultivates that insight into the truth. So just as the mind has been conditioned unconsciously to be unaware, craving, and reactive, through the mindfulness and the awareness and the kindness, we can cultivate that capacity to be aware, content with equanimity. The awareness to perceive with patience and acceptance, with spaciousness, non-reactivity, not needing things to be other than they are. So as we sit with all of these sensations, including the ones of discomfort, we begin to break the cycle, the break the cycle of samsara, of dukkha. Sitting with discomfort in the body or the mind is such a worthy practice. I'm not saying sitting with injury. I'm sitting with discomfort. When I was in Thailand um, and I was um, part of, um, I ordained for about six months and went on pilgrimage to Ajahn Chah's home monastery in Wat Nong Papong. And they had a festival to honor, they have a festival every year to honor uh, his passing. Um, And they have a beautiful uh, meditation hall about maybe three times the size of this one. And um, the floors are um, pristine white marble, polished and cold. (laughs) And you sit on the floor for the Dharma talks, no zabutans, no cushions. You just sit on the floor for four hours. And that's discomfort. And it was a practice. It was a a huge, plus the fact that I don't understand Thai. (laughs) I forgot to say that. And it was a worthy, worthwhile experience. Sitting in discomfort is a worthwhile experience. Sitting with a teacher you don't agree with is a worthwhile experience. What is the Dharma learning beyond that which you disagree? So there are discomforts in the retreat you know, that can seem like disturbances and challenges, you know, rustling and noise in the meditation hall. Too many rules for you to follow, but not enough for everybody else to follow because they don't follow them. Or, or, you know, the food might be a problem or the rooms might be a problem or the bathrooms or the, you know, the bells are being rung at the wrong times or someone's breaking silence and using their cell phone or their laptop. And all the thoughts and all of the feelings. And maybe you've heard things that you don't agree with or don't make sense. And in spite of that, in spite of all of that, 
is there freedom? Is there a calmness in the storm, whatever that storm is like? What are the conditions of your freedom? Are there prerequisites for you to experience freedom? And who would you be, who, what kind of life would you live without these prerequisites? Because there are none. Our concept of freedom is skewed by our cultural conditioning because freedom is not about doing whatever we want or getting whatever we want, doing it with whomever we want. That is just the addiction and the craving for pleasant experiences and the escape from unpleasant ones. So when we're dissatisfied, can we be okay? When we're satisfied, can we be okay? Noticing the impulse and not needing to act on that. Noticing the preferences and not needing to respond to them. As many of you know, you know, mindfulness is hitting the political arena and also levels of government. And um, it's uh, coming even into the military as, um, as, uh, um, as skills to build. And this was in the New York Times a few years ago about some of uh, the examples of the effects of these um, mindfulness trainings on... Um, on active duty soldiers. So one, one, a veteran of several deployments to Iraq said he was out at dinner the previous night when a customer at a nearby table said he and his friends were being obnoxious. The vet said, at one time I might have, gone, I might have thrown the guy out the window and gone for the jugular. But guided by the new techniques, he fought the temptation and decided to buy the man a beer instead. Later, the guy came over and apologized. Noticing the impulse and not needing to act. I don't know. I just feel that it's actually a high level of human evolution to be able to do that. I don't know. I haven't checked. But I don't know of other species that can actually perform that. And even the Buddha, again with the template of his life, even after his enlightenment, didn't stop having problems. You know, he had personal dukkha. You know, he, had, he supposedly had migraines from, you know, his behavior in a past life. He had backaches. He had gastrointestinal problems that he actually died from. He had community dukkha, you know, lots of conflicts in the Sangha. His cousin tried to kill or assassinate him three times. And his whole tribal clan got um, massacred during his lifetime. And all of his principal disciples, his parents, and his wife predeceased him. None of these disturbed his freedom. Equanimity does not ask us to be passive. It asks us to be patient. As short as this life is, it so often takes so much longer to do things than we think they should. So many of you know the, um, the story of the la- of whom they call the Lady of No Fear, Aung San Suu Kyi. And for those of you who don't know the details, she was released by the um, Burmese junta in, in late 2010. But previous to that, she had been incarcerated for 15 out of like 21 years. And, and um, uh, 
she was the forefront of the um, democratic process, and that's why the the junta um, incarcerated her. She was just born as a you know into a family in in and what married a um, academic researcher and lived in England. And when in 1988 went home to care for her ill mother is when she got involved in the collective efforts towards democratic freedom. When she began, came involved and, and, and was under house arrest, part of her suffering was not being able to see her husband who eventually passed from prostate cancer. She didn't, um, she wasn't able to see her children as they were growing up. So after um, her release, this was a passage in, in Time magazine, the regime has ignored her repeated efforts for national reconciliation dialogue. Since releasing her, the junta has dealt dealt with Suchi by acting as if she didn't exist, expunging any mention of her from the local press and hoping that despite her busy calendar and the huge crowds that gather wherever she goes, she will somehow dwindle into irrelevance. What is Suchi's response to this? especially after all of the years of oppression. I wish I could have tea with them every Saturday, a friendly tea, she says, of the generals. And so then the reporter asks, and what if they turn down a nice cup of tea? Well, we could always try coffee. (laughs) That non-reactivity with wisdom and compassion, produces equanimous action, which we know how much she has influenced that process. How often have we gone to fix something that with our best intentions, you know, that is, that is a problem or, or is broken, and we rush in to fix it, only to make it worse. How often have we moved into action without truly understanding the nature of the problem, which is the wisdom that equanimity can bring us? Whether it's on a personal level or a collective level, equanimity provides the space so that our actions will truly have a chance of benefiting and not causing further harm. Dr. Martin Luther King said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The arc of our lives is really complicated And for social activists, we have to remember there's a distinction between freedom and justice. Justice is such a worthy and necessary human endeavor, and it will always take longer than we would like. Again, Dr. King says, as you press for justice, be sure you move with dignity and discipline using only the instruments of love, only the instruments of love. Freedom does not mean to be in a place where there is no problem or struggle or even oppression. It means to be in the midst of those things and still be free in our hearts and minds. So that there is so much work that needs to be done in this world. We can feel that urgency of the human condition, the needs of our woundedness, And things may seem so pressing and prominent. And to know that this sense of urgency is not felt for the first time. It has been felt by humanity. It is not just in our personal lives. 
It is the reality of the first noble truth. Equanimity is not waiting for the end of the first noble truth. It is not waiting for the end of the conditions that actually cause pain. Equanimity is the possibility of freedom in this moment. So that we can do the hard work that needs to be done in this world with greater ease. It allows us to create justice through just means. Because justice cannot be created through anything else. Ajahn Jimnian, who's one of the um, current elder Thai masters, who um, uh, he, he doesn't come as frequently to the U.S. to teach anymore, has said, injustice is part of the world. Err on the side of equanimity first. If we react from the place of injury, suffering, or pain, we will continue contributing to keeping the pain open. When he talked about the... Um, the lived experience of forgiveness within Nelson Mandela. And I wanted to share another story about from his remarkable um, journey and path in this world. That he was freed from prison uh, on February 11th, 1990. And um, after that began four years of intense, complicated, and um, arduous negotiations to bring uh, free elections and and democracy to South Africa. And many times it almost didn't happen. But the most critical time was um, uh, there were many leaders of the democratic movement. Mandela was not the only one. And there was this man, uh, Chris Hani, who, who um, led many of the young people um, in this movement. And he was the second most popular leader after Mandela. And in April of 1993, three years into the negotiations, he was assassinated. And it almost derailed everything. And it almost plunged the entire country into this civil war that they had ne- the likes of which they had never seen. He was um, assassinated by a, a, a right-wing European immigrant. And the only reason he was arrested was because of a white Afrikaner woman coming to the police. Historically, it was a tipping point because it could have tipped in any direction. And it was not de Klerk who was the president of the country that went in front of the country. It was Mandela who wanted to avoid at all costs this, this extreme, this polarization. And he addressed the country in this way. Tonight, I am reaching out to every single South African, black and white, from the very depths of my being. A white man filled with prejudice and hate came to our country and committed a deed so foul that our whole nation now teeters on the brink of disaster. A white woman of Afrikaner origin risked her life so that we may know and bring to justice this assassin. The cold-blooded murder of Chris Hani has sent shockwaves throughout the country and the world. Our grief and anger is tearing us apart. Now is the time for all South Africans to stand together against those who from any quarter wish to destroy what Chris Hani gave his life for, the freedom of all of us. And he ended his speech this way.
This is a watershed moment for all of us. Our decisions and actions will determine whether we use our pain, our grief, and our outrage to move forward to what is the only lasting solution for our company, for our country, an elected government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Noticing the impulse towards violence and not needing to act on it. This practice is so powerful, not just for our personal lives, but for our communities and our world. So let's just connect the dots in reverse. The story of Mandela, the story of Suchi, the vet from Iraq, the boy from Visitation Valley, the practice of the itch. It is one practice that encompasses your life and the world. What we do here is no different than how we can create peace in the world. The Buddha said, a mind filled with equanimity is abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, and without ill will. Please know deeply that simply by being here, you have come so far in your practice of mindfulness and equanimity. You may not feel that aware, you may not feel that equanimous, but just by riding the waves of all of your experience, all of the joys and the sorrows, the comforts and the discomforts, the pleasure and the pain, you have actually cultivated that equanimity or you would have left, right? You would have left, but you're here. That means the equanimity is here too. And that's our human journey. From suffering, through suffering, into freedom. Both individually and collectively. That's the expansiveness of our practice. and our equanimity can support and contain all of it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.